Good morning, church. Is anyone excited to be in the house this morning? Nah, you can do better than that. If there's breath in your lungs, there's purpose for your life. Can we make some noise for Jesus this morning in the house? Amazing, amazing, amazing. Element, how y'all feel? Y'all doing all right? Y'all still alive? Y'all good? Y'all rocking with me? Incredible. Uh, well, hey, my name is Gerald Fediomi, and it is a privilege to be with you all this morning. I've got a chance to hang out with these students up here in the front. It's been a wild, crazy, exciting, amazing uh, weekend, and we've gotten to know each other a little bit. But since they know me and you don't, I feel like there's a couple of things that y'all need to know about me that they already know, so you guys can talk to each other for a second while I explain to everyone else in the room who I am. Two things you need to know about me. The first is this. Both of my parents are African. When I say African, I don't mean African-American. I mean African, 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 African. Like Lion King, Madagascar, Jungle Book, African. Uh, my dad's from Nigeria. His name is Oluwafemi. My mom's from Liberia. Her name is Equa. Somehow the two came together, had a kid named Gerald. <laughs> the whitest name for the blackest person you've ever seen in your whole life. But it is what it is. Second thing y'all need to know about me, I got to share this with the students this weekend, uh, is I'm married. I've been married for almost three years. It'll be three years in May. Uh, and my wife wanted to be here with us, but she couldn't make it. And the reason she couldn't make it uh, is because of this picture right here. I think we have it somewhere. There it is. We got babies on the way, y'all. Come on. And some of you are, are like trying to make sure you're understanding correctly. Yes, I said babies. We got identical twin baby girls on the way. Um, so we're really excited about that. We're wearing Falcon stuff because my wife cheered for the Falcons for four years. Uh, otherwise, it'd be really hard to wear Falcon stuff right now. We're, we're really struggling. Um, but y'all pray for us. We're, we're really excited to have our two little girls on the way. Also pray for all of the little boys who will be born around the same time as them because I will probably drop kick one of them in the throat. So, um, but we're, we're really excited about that. It's been such an honor and a privilege to be uh, at Element this weekend. We've been talking about this idea of seeing clearly. And for those of you who haven't been around, let me just give you a quick little recap of what we talked about. We started night one by talking about what happens when we really see Jesus. When we see Jesus for who he really is, it shapes the way that we live the rest of our lives, and it also allows us to know that God really does have a purpose and a plan for us. We looked at the story of Peter and the moment that he decided to follow Jesus and saw that God has more in store than what we have in mind. And then we came back the next morning and we talked about how we see our decisions, because the reality of our decisions today is that they will impact our lives and our future. And so all of us gathered together and we talked to a group of students about making wise decisions today to become the people that God has in mind for them to become in the future. And then last night we talked about how we see ourselves and how God sees us. And we talked about all of the labels that have been placed on us, labels that we see when we look in the mirror, labels that we feel when we wake up, labels that we feel before we go to bed at night, but the reality is that when Jesus looks at us, he doesn't see the labels that have been given to us or the labels that we give to ourselves. He sees the label that he's given to us, and, that, and that's that we are sons and daughters of the Most High King. And so we've been spending all weekend talking about what it means to see, and I wanted to wrap up our time together talking about how we see failure. Because the reality is, is that there's a group of students in this room, some of which put their faith in Jesus for the very first time, some of which decided to get back up and follow Jesus again. But the reality of their story is somewhere along the way they're going to fail and how they see failure will determine what their relationship with God looks like moving forward. But not only for them, for all of us. That failure is a part of every one of our stories and the way that we see failure will determine the way that we live. And so I want to talk about failure this morning. So let me pray. Uh, we'll jump in. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 13 and John chapter 21, so you can turn there in a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you 
um, for your word. Thank you that it is alive and active, that it's still speaking to us now. And so my prayer for this morning is that you would speak and that your people would listen, myself included, and that we would have the courage to live according to your word. So would you speak to us? Would we be receptive? And would we leave here different than the way we walked in? We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I don't know where you've experienced failure in my life. I know there's been a lot of failure in my own. Maybe for you it was a New Year's resolution uh, that you had, ways that you thought you were going to grow and improve this year, and you haven't really seen those things turn out the way that you planned for them to turn out. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I know that failure is a part of all of our stories. And as I've been thinking about this idea of failure and the way that we see failure, the question kept coming to my mind of why failure seems to stick with us the way that it does. It's interesting that no matter how old you are in the room, the moments where you failed seem to travel with you everywhere that you go. That you can have incredible moments in life, you can have incredible moments in your company, incredible moments in your marriage, but the moments where you've messed up, the moments where you've failed, the moments where you've fallen short seem to stand out the loudest, seem to travel with you everywhere you go. Failure is constantly knocking on our door and reminding us as the ways that we've failed. The more that I thought about this, I I started to realize that I think the reason that failure is such a big deal is just because of the culture that we live in. Living here in the United States of America, one of the greatest countries in the world, there's also some challenges to living in this culture. And what I mean by that is this, is that we live in a culture that's really kind of built around one word. It's the thing that builds the American dream, that we live in a culture that's built on performance. That we live in a culture that's built around this one word, performance. How you live will determine what you receive. Essentially what I mean is this, we live in a culture that says you get what you deserve. That what you put in the life is what you'll get out of life. I remember growing up, there was this Gatorade commercial that would come on, this cute little mixed kid would go running down the street and he'd be singing this song, you go, I know I can be what I wanna be. If I work hard at it, I'll be where I wanna be. And then all the hood kids would come running out of their apartments and they'd all run down the street together. How they would run and sing at the same time, I have no idea. I can't run and I'm not good at singing, but somehow they did both at the same time. I know I can be what I wanna be. If I'm getting tired right now and they were doing it full speed. If I work hard at it, I'll be where I want to be. It's such a reflection of the culture that we live in. I know I can be what I want to be. Whatever I want to be, I can be as long as I put in the work. I get what I deserve. And we see this in every area of our culture, right? Like when you think about, just think about life as a ladder. Think about all areas of your life like this. This is true when it comes to school for the students in the room or college students in the room. If you actually go to class, college students, if you make it to your 8 a.m., God willing, miracle, right? Then you understand the concepts better. If you understand the concepts better, then you get better grades. You get better grades, you have a higher GPA. You have a high enough GPA, then you go to college or you stay in college and your parents still love you, right? Like you get what you deserve. What you put into life is what you will get out of life. This is true when it comes to school. This is also true when it comes to work. All of our working professionals in the room know that this is the way that at least it should work at your company, right? That if you show up and do your job, your boss notices. If you do a good job when they notice, then you may get a promotion. If you do a good job with the promotion, you may get a raise. 
If you do a good job with the raise, then you may get to lead a department. If you do a good job leading the department, then you get to lead the division. And eventually, you work your way up the corporate ladder to get what you deserve. You get the position that you deserve. What you put in is what you get out. This is true when it comes to school. It's true when it comes to work. It's true when it comes to sports. This is true for pretty much every area of our life. In fact, this mentality is so true for us that it even bleeds over into areas where it shouldn't necessarily be, but it still kind of works. Right? The thing about your marriage, for example, if you're married in the room, you decide to be a good husband, you leave work early on Friday. You come home, you realize the dishes aren't done, so you do the dishes. Finish doing the dishes, you realize, oh, there's some clothes in the dryer that haven't been folded yet, and so you fold all the clothing, even match the socks, you know, because everyone hates that missing sock finish doing the laundry, and you have a little bit more time left before your wife gets home, and so you decide, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and make dinner for our family tonight. And so now you've done the dishes, you've folded the laundry, you've made dinner, and your wife walks in the door, and you give her that face. Come on now. Come on. Compliment me. Compliment me for doing one time the thing you do every day. Come on now, tell me how good of a husband I am. Let me know, girl. And she's like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. You're so helpful. Like, you really took some stress off of my shoulder. And that's when you know, that's your moment. That's when you go in for the kill. You look at her with those eyes. You lick your lips. You know, babe, um, came home, did the dishes. Laundry, folded. Even matched the socks, girl. Come on, I'm killing it, okay? Dinner, it's done. So, um, you know, uh, I was thinking, you know, maybe like, you think, I mean, come on. You think maybe I could go golfing with my boys this weekend? See, some of y'all need to get your mind out the gutter at church, okay? You get <laughs> what you deserve. What you put into life is what you get out of life. And we can laugh about it a little bit this morning, but isn't it true that this is the way our world works? That we constantly find ourselves climbing ladders to get to the places that we deserve. I want to be very clear about what I'm saying this morning. I'm not saying that this is bad. Because if you're a student in the room, like if there's a college you want to go to, you should work hard to get into that college. If there's a career path that you want to go down, you should do the work that's required to have that career. If there are some things that you want to accomplish in life, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do the work. But I do want to be clear about what I'm saying this morning, is that while this may not necessarily be all bad, this can be an extremely dangerous way to think. Because while it may work when it comes to school, while it may work when it comes to work, we tend to take this mentality, and because it's true in those areas, we apply it to other areas of our life where it does not work. Particularly this morning, we apply it to our faith. And because in every other area of our life, we've been climbing the ladder to get what we deserve, we now think that this is the way that it works with God. That if I have perfect church attendance, then God will love me more. If I read my Bible, then God will really love me. If I pray enough, then God will love me. 
If I have the right behavior, then God will love me. If I say the right things, if I act in the right ways, if I'm a good enough person, then eventually I can work my way to the top of the ladder to the point that I now have right standing with God. And for a lot of us in the room, this is the version of Christianity that we've become to believe. That if we work hard enough and we do all the right things and we act in all the right ways, eventually we get to a place where we have right standing with God. Here's the problem with this, and most of you know this already. You never get here, do you? That somewhere along the way between up here and down here, we run into the word that we're talking about this morning, failure. Somewhere between down there and up here, we miss the mark. Somewhere between down there and up here, we fall short. Somewhere between down here, down there and up here, we said, hey, I'm going to read my Bible every day this year. And then you got to January 3rd. And you failed. Maybe it's more serious than that. Maybe it was this year was the year that I'll be sober. And then that thing happened that led you to the drink. And you failed. Maybe this was the year that you said, I'm not going back to those sites anymore. I'm tired of having to delete my search history so that my wife doesn't know what I'm actually looking at. And then you failed. Maybe this was the year that you said you were going to treat your spouse differently. And then you failed. Maybe this was the year that you said, I'm not going to lie to my parents anymore. I want to mend the relationship. You failed. And I don't know where it is, but the reality for all of us is that we never actually make it to the top of the ladder when it comes to our faith. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans 3.23. He said this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Translation, you're never making it up here. All of us are going to fall short. None of us are going to reach the goal. None of us can live up to the standard of God. We are all going to fail. Essentially what Paul is saying this is failure is inevitable. No matter how good your intentions are, no matter how hard you try this year, no matter how many goals you set for yourself, somewhere along the way you are going to fail. And it may feel like you're taking one step forward and two steps back. It may feel like I'm getting closer and closer to Jesus, but then I did the thing again, and now I feel like I'm so distant from him that he wants nothing to do with me. It may feel like, man, I'm killing my Bible reading plan, but then that week happens where you get busy, and before you know it, that week turns into months, and that month turns into the whole year before you pick up your Bible again. That somewhere along the way, you are going to fail. And for a lot of us, the reality of this year, if you're not here right now, you will find yourself at the bottom of the ladder looking up going, can God still love me? Does God still want me? Because I feel like I've failed too far to make it back to the top. I feel like I've messed up too much for God to want someone like me. And I don't know where you are in the room this morning, but here's what I know as a pastor in Atlanta is this, is that I've come across far too many students and way too many adults who were following Jesus, but then they failed, so they gave up. I've come across way too many students and way too many adults, some of you in the room right now, who you feel like you're so big of a failure, there's no point in even trying. That because of your past and your story, you would look at me and you go, Gerald, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea who I am. God could never love someone like me, so there's no point in even trying. I've watched way too many people count themselves out of a relationship with Jesus because they fell into the lie that following Jesus meant climbing the ladder. And so this morning, I came to set the record straight. But the only way to do that, that I know, is to go to the scriptures. And so I want to spend some time this morning looking at the story of a man who knew what it felt like to fail. 
who had arguably the biggest failure in the New Testament. It's funny because when we think about this person, we think about his success. We don't often remember his failure, but that's what I want to talk about today. We're going to talk about the story of Peter. If you've grown up in church, you've heard of Peter before. He was one of Jesus' 12, but better than the 12, he was one of the three. He was in the inner circle. He walked very closely with Jesus. On night one of, of camp, of Element, we talked about the moment that Peter decided to follow Jesus, this beautiful moment where Jesus gets in Peter's boat. He asks him to row out to the deep water and drop his nets for a catch. And Peter catches this miraculous catch of fish. And when he does, he realizes who it is that's standing in the boat with him. He really sees Jesus clearly for the first time. And when he does, he leaves everything behind and he follows Jesus. Side note, that's what happens when you really see Jesus. That if you've actually seen the living God, nothing else matters to you. Everything else becomes secondary. You leave everything behind and you chase after Jesus with all that you have. That's what Peter does. He begins to follow Jesus. And as he does, there's these incredible moments that Peter has with Jesus. Like there's this one time that, that Jesus tells his disciples to go, ahead and head, to go ahead ahead of him and that he would meet them on the other side of this lake. And so they get in the boat and they, they go across the lake without him. But as they're going across the lake, this storm starts brewing. And they become afraid of the storm. They're not sure what to do, but to make matters worse, then they see this ghostly figure walking across the water and they didn't know that it was Jesus. So Jesus calls out to them, hey guys, it's good, it's me. You don't have to be afraid. And Peter being who Peter was, the loud, rambunctious one of the group, he yells out to Jesus, Jesus, if that's really you, bruh, let me get out on that water with you. And Jesus is like, all right, well, come on with it, homie. That's the hood translation of the Bible. Um, <laughs> and so Peter steps out of the boat, and he begins walking on water towards Jesus. Now, oftentimes when pastors tell this story, we talk about the fact that, that Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, he began to sink, and Jesus had to save him and put him back in the boat, and all the other disciples were probably on the boat like, ah, look at you, Peter, idiot, right? Like, that's the way we tell the story. But let's not miss this for a moment. There are two humans to ever walk on water. One was Jesus, and the other was Peter. This was an incredible moment for Peter. This is not in the scriptures. This is just the way I imagine it. I imagine Peter gets back on the boat. They start making fun of him. <laughs> Idiot. And Peter stands up and he's like, really, Bartholomew? When was the last time you walked on water? All right, then. Shut up. Right? Like, like Peter has this incredible, incredible moment. And then there's this other moment where Jesus sits down with his disciples and he starts asking them about his reputation. Hey, who do people say that I am? And one by one, they try to answer who they think Jesus is, and each and every one of them is wrong until Peter enters the conversation. He goes, guys, quiet. I know who you are. You are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, that's right. Only God could have told you that. Peter nailed it. Then there's this other moment where Jesus is preaching the sermon, and he begins to tell his, this crowd that's listening to him that they're going to have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He was talking about the sacrament of communion, but they didn't understand that at the time. And so the crowd begins to walk away slowly. One by one, they leave. And as they're leaving, Jesus takes his attention off the crowd and he turns to his disciples and he goes, do y'all want to leave too? And some of his disciples are probably thinking like, oh, Jesus, like, I don't know. I didn't really sign up for Twilight Jesus, so, Ugh. And Peter's like, guys, come on. Really? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus, there's no better option than you. We're not going anywhere. 
As you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see over and over and over these incredible moments that Peter had with Jesus. But then there's this dinner. We know it now as the Last Supper, but for them, this would have been the traditional Passover meal that they would have celebrated every year. They would celebrate the fact that God had freed the Israelites from the Egyptians in the story of Exodus, and so every year they would have this meal to commemorate what God had done. When they show up for this meal with Jesus this year, it's different because they walk into the upper room and things get a little strange. Jesus removes his outer garment, he gets down on his hands and knees, and he begins to wash the feet of his disciple. The reason this is so weird is because this would have been the work of the lowliest servant in the house. Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, the Messiah, should have never been washing his disciples' feet. It's the reason that Peter responds the way that he does. Lord, you can't wash my feet. Jesus goes, Peter, you don't understand. I have to wash your feet. And so Peter goes, well, if you're going to wash my feet, Jesus, wash all of me, baby. I want to be clean. Jesus is like, Peter, give me your feet. He washes his feet. And then they sit down for the meal. And if it wasn't strange enough, it only gets worse because Jesus then begins to tell his disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all looking around the table like, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. And Judas is in the corner like, it's going to be me. He knew what he was going to do. And it gets worse. Because then Jesus tells them, I'm leaving. And where I'm going, you cannot come. John chapter 13, starting in verse 36 through 38, we'll read. It says this. So Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, well, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. So Peter asked him, Lord, why can't we follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Translation, Jesus, I'm not going to fail you. Jesus, I'm your ride or die. Jesus, I got you. Like, I don't know about Matthew. He used to be a tax collector. He might trade on you. I don't know about John, he's a little weird, like head on your shoulder. Get off, John. Bartholomew, weird name, don't know about him. But me, Jesus, I'm in. I'm your ride or die. I'm with you till the end. I will lay down everything for you. Jesus, I will die for you. Jesus, I will not fail. Peter finishes his speech and Jesus responds, verse 38. Then Jesus answered him, will you really lay down your life for me? Peter, really? You're going to die for me? Peter, come on. You're not going to fail? Really? No, 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 no. Peter, you're going to fail. And not just once, multiple times. Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter, you are going to fail. Not once, not twice but on three different occasions. You know what's interesting to me about this story? This is just a side note. It's interesting that Jesus allowed Peter to seat at the Last Supper, even though he knew that, Jesus, that Peter would fail him in the future. Just an interesting thought to think about. Jesus tells Peter he'll fail him three times, and he was exactly right, because on three different occasions after Jesus was arrested, Peter was asked, aren't you the guy who walked with Jesus? No, man, didn't know him. Aren't you the guy who, who lived with Jesus? No, 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 didn't know him. Wait, weren't you the guy in the garden who cut off the dude's ear because you were with Jesus? No! I did not know him. And on the third time, immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter had done the thing that he said he would never do. Peter had failed. A failure of epic proportions. Jesus, I will die for you. I don't know him. Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. Never heard of him. 
Jesus, I'm not going to fail you. Jesus, who? On three different occasions, Peter does the thing that Jesus said that he would do. And now that he's failed, he really only has two options left. He can give up or he can get up. He can give up and he can go back to who he used to be. He can give up and he can abandon Jesus or he can get up and he can follow Jesus again. What do you think he does? What do you think? Get up? That's what I would assume. Like knowing who, who Peter is, I would expect that he would get up. I mean, this is a guy that walked on water. Of course he's going to get up. This is the first one who acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah. Surely he's going to get back up. This is the one who said, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. I'm not turning on you. Of course, Peter is definitely going to get up. Except for he doesn't. He gives up. And he goes back to fishing. He gives up on who Jesus had called him to be, and he goes back to the life that he lived before he knew Jesus. And I just wonder how many of us find ourselves in similar spots where we have a plan and a purpose to follow Jesus with all that we have, but then we fail and we wonder if we can still follow him, so we give up and go back to our old ways, to our old patterns, to our old behaviors. Peter does what many of us are tempted to do. He gives up and he goes back to fishing. Jesus ends up being arrested, falsely tried, crucified on a cross, buried in a grave. But we know the story that three days later he would raise from the grave victorious and the word would begin to spread amongst his disciples. Jesus is back. Jesus is back. Jesus is back. Well, then there's this one particular morning where the disciples are out fishing. Peter is leading the guys. They're all fishing. And they haven't caught anything that day. There's a man standing on the shore and he calls out to them, hey, guys, caught anything? No, sir, we haven't caught anything yet. Well, why don't you throw your nets to the other side? And so they do, and when they do, the nets begin to fill with fish. I imagine Peter has this moment where he goes, this is familiar. I remember a guy telling me to drop my nets for a catch, and Jesus, is that? And the scriptures tell us that Peter jumps out of the boat and he begins swimming as fast as he can to Jesus. Super interesting to me because the boat would have been way faster, but it's Peter. So he starts swimming to Jesus. He gets there and the boat show up, like the guy on the boat show up, like do-do-do, idiot, right? Like they get off, they stand on the shore, and Jesus begins to prepare this breakfast for them. They eat this breakfast on the beach. You have to imagine how Peter feels in this moment. The last time that he had had a meal with Jesus was the time that he told Jesus that he would never fail him. And so now he's having a meal with the Savior again, and his heart is probably beating in his chest. Cold sweats. Nervous. Palms are sweaty. Knees weak. Arms are heavy. Vomit on his sandals already. Finish eating the meal. And Jesus locks eyes with Peter. Peter should be terrified. Jesus speaks. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, and feed my lambs. 
Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, well, take care of my sheep. A third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because he asked the third time. For every time that Peter had failed him, Jesus asked, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, and feed my sheep. I love this interaction between Jesus and Peter because on the surface it could feel like Jesus might be shaming Peter for what he's done. But in reality, what Jesus is doing is he's giving Peter a pep talk. Hey, Peter, I know you failed. You still love me? Go feed my sheep. Peter, I know you failed. You still love me? Take care of my lambs. Peter, Peter, I know you failed. Do you still love me? Well then, get up. I know you failed. Get up. I know, you did the thing you said you were never going to do. Get up, Peter. I know, you're ashamed. Get up. I know, there's guilt. Get up. I know, Peter, you feel like a failure. You've given up on yourself. Peter, look at me. I haven't given up on you. Get up. I'm not done with you, Peter. I can still use you, Peter. Get back up. Church, hear me this morning. I think Jesus is saying to you and I the same thing that he's saying to Peter. Get up. I know you failed. Get up. I know you said you were going to read your Bible every day. Get up. I know you went back to the website again. Get up. I know the addiction, it came back. Get up. I know you lied again. Get up. I know you made some mistakes. Get up. I know you've given up on yourself. Get back up. I died on the cross for you. I have not given up on you. There's still a plan and a purpose for your life. Get back up now. Get up. Peter, get up. Church, I'm not done with you yet. In this moment, Peter experiences this beautiful thing that as Christians we call grace. I remember when I first became a Christian, I kept hearing people talk about this grace thing, but I didn't really get it. And so I went to my mentor and I asked him, I said, he said, hey, Wes, everyone keeps talking about grace, but I don't understand. Like, could you explain it to me? Like, I know a girl named Grace and she's pretty amazing, but that's about as far as it goes for me. Some of y'all catch that late, amazing. Okay. Um, and so Wes set me down and he said, hey, Gerald, grace is really difficult to explain. It's kind of hard to understand, but I'm going to give you the very best definition that I have for grace is this. So Gerald, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. In a culture that says, hey, what you put in the life is what you get out of life. In a culture that says you get what you deserve, you climb your way to the top of the ladder and then you get the things that are coming to you, grace says the exact opposite. Grace says you get the very thing that you never deserved in the first place. I love this so much because it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says about grace in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He says this, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. What does that mean? You didn't earn it. But this is what? The, the, this is the of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So Paul says, if you want to understand grace, here's the best way to understand it. Think about it like a gift. That grace is a gift. Anyone ever gotten a great gift before in life? Show hands, anyone? Yeah, me too. I'll tell you the best gift I ever got. I was six years old. It was Christmas morning, and 
in our house, we had this rule that you couldn't come downstairs until my mom said so, because I'd wake up at like three o'clock in the morning, like, Santa, where are you? So like, get upstairs now, right? Like, yes, ma'am. And so I remember this particular Christmas morning, I'm laying in bed waiting for my mom to second come down, but I didn't hear her. Instead, I heard a knocking at the door. The door opens and I hear this thick African accent from downstairs call up to me, Jedad, bring your boots downstairs. I have a gift that I want to give to you. <laughs> so I come running down the stairs. So my dad is there with this box. He says, come, come and sit in your daddy's lap. So I sit in his lap. And he picks up this box and he puts it in front of me. And I remember looking at him, him looking at me, go ahead, open the gift. And so I start ripping open the box. And I get inside, and students, you may not understand this, but all the adults in the room, you'll get this. In the box is the greatest gift that any human could receive at this point in life. It is a Super Nintendo, <laughs> fully equipped with Duck Hunt. If you don't know what Duck Hunt is, it's, yeah, thank you. If you don't know what it is, there's these little two-dimensional birds, they fly across the screen, you have this orange gun, you shoot them, they die, it's amazing. I remember looking at this gift, looking at my dad, looking at the gift, looking at my dad. He said the sweetest thing to me, I'll never forget it. Jared, in my country, when you turn six years old, you go outside, you kill animals, you feed the whole village. In this country, you cannot kill anything. You shoot the birds, you have a good time. <laughs> Y'all, I shot those birds like crazy. You know what's funny to me about that gift? Is that at six years old, there was nothing that I did to earn the gift from my dad. At six years old, there was nothing that, could have, that I could have done to deserve the gift that my dad was giving to me. At six years old, the only thing that I could do was receive the gift. Hear me, that's grace. It is a gift from your perfect heavenly father. You have not earned it. You don't deserve it. All you can do is receive it and use it as often as possible. You failed? Grace. Need forgiveness? Grace. Need a second chance? Grace. Fall back into the addiction? Grace, get up. Lied again? Grace, try again. Broken? Grace. Sinner? Grace. It is the gift of God. And it was grace that was offered to Peter in this moment. And for Peter, it did three things. Three things that this grace does for us and I'll end with these three ideas. The first is this, is that grace restores the relationship with God. That grace restores our relationship with God. I love this so much. Do you realize the story of Peter is this? Peter did not fail, go get his life together, and then come back to Jesus and go, I'm good now, love me. The story of Peter is he was following Jesus, he failed, he ran back to his old habits, and Jesus came off the cross and ran after him. That is the gospel. That's the good news. 
is that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we no longer have to climb the ladder into right standing with God. That God in his great grace and love for us came down the ladder in human flesh in the person of Jesus, understanding everything we have ever faced, everything we've ever gone through, and died on a cross so that you and I can be restored in a right relationship with him. You no longer have to climb the ladder. The grace of God makes relationship available possible for you. And so if you're in the room feeling like you're too big of a failure to be loved by God, here's some good news. You're not. You can get up. Grace. The second thing this grace does is it restores the purpose and plan that God has for you. You remember when Jesus first interacted with Peter, when Peter first decided to follow Jesus, Jesus met Peter and said, you're a fisherman now, but from now on, you'll be a fisher of men. Meaning, Jesus, Peter, I'm going to use you to influence people for my name. Peter follows Jesus, he fails, he goes back to being a fisherman, and Jesus shows up in John 21, and what does he say to Peter? Take care of my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. Translation, Peter, I'm going to use you to influence people for my name. Your purpose and plan has not changed because of your failure, I can still use you. Peter, you don't understand, I work all things together for the good of those who love me. Get up, I still have a plan for you, get up. I still have a purpose for you, get up. Your addiction does not disqualify you, God can still use you. Your past does not disqualify you, God can still use you. Your failure does not count you out, God can still use you. Your failure is not final. The grace of God restores the purpose and the plan that God has for you, so get back up. The third thing this grace does is this, is it allows us to move past our past. That grace allows us to move past our past. And for some of you, you've been letting your past guilt, your past shame, your past regret, your past failure, discount you from a relationship with God. And I just want you to know tonight, you don't, or this morning, you don't have to do that anymore. You can leave the past behind and you can step forward into a glorious future. The old is gone, the new has come. So I'll tell you church what Jesus told Peter, get up, follow him again. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that while we fail over and over and over, we have not earned it, we don't deserve it, that you are a God who loves us so much that you give us your grace freely, that you give us a second chance, that you give us another opportunity to get it right. And so Father, for everyone in the room, whether it's a student who said yes to following you and feels like they've already failed, whether it's an adult in the room who's been running for you for so long because they feel like a failure, my prayer for them this morning is this, that they would do what Peter did and they would get back up on their feet today and they would run back into your loving arms again. That they would come hungry, come thirsty, and come just as they are. We love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name.